0: Today on The Art Dealer Show, we will hear returning guest, gallery owner,
1: and art dealer Jim Hartley say if there if I had to boil it down to any one thing, to whatever success we've had in developing this and, and two other major markets, uh, is that we're art dealers. Hello and welcome to the Art Dealer Show,
0: the one and only podcast for and about people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and this is part two of my conversation with co-owner of San Francisco Art Exchange in San Francisco, California, Jim Hartley. Now, as I always say on these things, don't worry if you haven't listened to part one. It's not a prerequisite for part two. However, it's well worth taking a listen to. As a matter of fact, I kind of insist upon it. I mean, just as a friend here, you really want to listen to this one. In the first one, we get into Jim's origin story, the tale of how he wound up finding his way into the art business. And no, it doesn't involve going to art school and things like that. As a matter of fact, I'll give you a little bit of a tease. It involves being under fire in the midst of the Iranian revolution in the late 1970s. And if that hasn't caught your attention, I I don't know what will. But don't worry. This one, It stands on its own two legs as well. Now, of course, it doesn't involve a revolution and the potential of being killed and things like that, but it's a good story. And as art dealers listening to this, it's a fantastic story. We're going to learn about the things that have taken place over the past four decades of the San Francisco Art Exchange. Very early on in their experience, uh, they brought on, for the first time in a very serious way to the gallery world, what is one of the most important American illustrators, Alberto Vargas. Now, if you get to bring to the gallery world for the first time an artist like Alberto Vargas, you're an accomplished art dealer in my book. But for Jim and Theron, that was just the beginning. After that, they wound up bringing for the first time a rock and roll star such as Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones. And after that, well, I'm just going to leave it for when we get to the actual conversation because I don't want to give too much away. But in the meantime, I want to share a story with you. Now, this is a story not only from the front line of art dealing, but actually one from not only from my career, but something that took place just in the past week so if you'll allow me to buy you a drink and take a couple minutes of your time I'd uh, love it if we can go head on over to the old art dealer bar and uh, let me tell you the tale from the feet. okay are we all settled in? comfortable? we got ourselves something perfect from the bar Joe set you up right? excellent now, as I said, this is something that happened just in the last week. Uh, my company, Limelight Agency, that I own with my partner Daniel, and by the way, a big shout-out to Daniel. Uh, just had some surgery recently in a bit of pain, uh, but recovering nicely. Uh, we put on a show with one of our partner galleries, Moose Gallery. Now, Moosh is in Beverly Hills, California and uh, when they put on a show they really put on a show and it was for one of our marquee artists Tom Everhart and this show this was a big deal show it's been a year in the works about a year back Tom started painting a brand new collection that would be just for this opening every little detail every square inch of the gallery planned out by Tom and the gallery The gallery did it by the number. Fresh coats of paint. Made sure the gallery was spotless. Weeks back, I started training the art dealers along with Tom about the artwork itself. Stories behind it. Videos were made at Tom's studio over the summer. Documentary pieces to be shared online and with collectors in the gallery about this entirely new collection. Not just one video, but two videos. About his new collection called Waves and Bubble Baths. Art dealers... They did exactly what art dealers are supposed to do. They started setting up their lists early on. VIP collectors, people who had been very interested in Tom's work, collectors who would be perfect for that opening. They started their phone calls early. They started telling their collectors about the seriousness of the collection and how wonderful it was going to be and the importance of it. They started setting up previews of the artwork that would go on in advance of the opening itself. All the things you want art dealers to do. An expensive, full-page ad was placed in a very fashionable art magazine. If you can think of something that should be done in advance of a major show, trust me, it was done. The caterers, the perfect champagne. And while the show was being set up by professional art installers, no less, that took place over three days, no less, uh, a, a family walked by the gallery. It was the Friday before the opening that would be on the Saturday, and the gallery was your typical mess. Ladders spread around and tape measures on the ground and, you know, artwork leaning up against walls and measuring and all the chaos that you see in a gallery during the preparations. Art dealers were on the phone in the back. A couple fancy-schmancy art agents in suits going over last details with the gallery owners. Yes, I just called myself Fancy Schmancy. And the owner of the gallery, Keiko Noah, caught their eye and waved them on in. She saw that they were interested, and she wasn't doing anything at that moment and thought she would show them around. And it's a very good thing she did. Because they took a very, very deep interest in the art. Now, they had never been in the gallery before. They had never heard of the artist Tom Everhart before. Uh, They never heard anything about the show. They literally were just walking down the street. Seemingly the beginnings of an absolute coconut. And the next night, they showed up, came to the opening. They got even more excited, met with the artist, got their picture taken. And by the very next day, they had a shopping list that, well, I'm not going to tell you the exact amount that it is, but let's just say you can buy a relatively nice house in los angeles for the amount of money that this artwork added up to and they wanted the artwork for one particular wall in their home so all that needed to happen at this point was for their house manager to measure that wall and make sure that the one key piece the biggest piece in the show the most expensive piece in the show the piece that if you sold just this one piece alone would pay for the entire show would fit on that wall which of course is the moment that All of us art dealers hold our breaths and pray to whatever gods we believe in. Let's just call them the art dealer gods. And sure enough, house manager called back up and said it fits. Fits perfectly. That piece they will take. And it was a moment of celebration for all of us. I mean, as I said, it was a big deal. And honestly, one of the biggest coconuts I've seen in a very, very long time. It was exactly this thing you hope for when you put on a show like this. It just didn't happen in the way that you expect it to when you make your plans. So what's the moral in that? Is there a moral in that? Is it you don't need to do all that fancy stuff? You don't need the ads in the magazine. You don't need the professional art installers. You don't need the preparation of all the art dealers. You don't need to make all those hundreds and hundreds of phone calls to the collectors. You don't need to Make your lists. You don't need to buy the expensive champagne for the opening. You don't need to do all of those things. You don't need a couple fancy schmancy art agents hanging out in the back. Is that what the moral of the story is? No, of course it's not the moral of the story. You need all of that stuff. It didn't come together like you planned, but it's always critical. I'm not just saying that because it's what we do in some justification. It all was key to that sale. They came in because they saw the activity. They came in because they sensed the excitement. They got validated in liking the artwork because somebody showed them the fancy ad in the fancy fashionable art magazine. They saw the video that was playing in the back of the gallery. They got excited about buying in the moment. All of it was important. But that's not the moral of this story, really. It's actually not why I'm telling the story at all. just thought it was kind of interesting. The reason I'm telling you this story is about what happened next. And what happened next is after all the excitement, after the big opening, and all of the celebrity friends of the artist came by in a packed gallery with all the security. After that had all winded down, the after party at the nightclub after the show was over too. And after I returned to my home in San Francisco and start recovering from what was a very long week ahead of time I uh, I got a text and I'm going to read it to you right now off of my phone it's not happening exclamation mark, exclamation mark exclamation mark the text had come from Keiko so I didn't need to be told what it's is it's is the sale and what's not happening is the sale The next thing that came now that i was holding my breath and my heart was stopping and sputtering was another text from her he went to measure the wall by himself dash so he said and it doesn't fit i didn't need to be told who he is he is probably the house manager and i knew what wall it was it was the wall that they needed the art to go on and Clearly, I know what doesn't fit. What doesn't fit is that biggest painting in the show that was going to pay for the entire show. That perfect coconut was no longer perfect. Doesn't fit. I was in a. Well, I had a drink or two, so I wasn't in an entire panic, but I, I, I was pretty uh, uh, <laughs> breathless. And then well, I'm not going to I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story here. Um, you know, it's really more Keiko Noah's story. So I, I think she should tell it. And uh, hey, hey, Joe, Joe, can you bring over uh, bring over the house phone for a second? OK, thank you very much. Um, let, let's call up Keiko. And uh, I'd like her to share this with uh, with us. Uh, she knows I'm gonna be calling, so it's not gonna be any surprise here.
2: Hello. We are family. Hey. <laughs> okay.
0: Is that how you answer your phone at the gallery?
2: Okay, I'm moving to the back. Okay. Sorry.
0: That's no problem. That's sounds Everybody good. I it.
2: They keep come dancing in. It's working for us.
0: I wanted to go over that sale that you had right around uh, the time of the opening from last week. Oh, okay. So they called you up and they said measurements are good. We're going to buy the piece. Fantastic.
2: Yeah, so that was amazing. So they met with um, the artist on the night of the show and then we're very excited and went home to measure their wall space
0: so no problem everything's good everything was perfect but then what
2: so um, you know we had arranged to deliver the piece you know in the next couple of days and right the day before we were going to deliver it they called me back and said that they didn't that it didn't fit anymore that the inches weren't working and they don't know what happened and they measured it, and they don't understand why. They had a tape measure, and it just didn't work, and it's off, and we're short by, you know, six and a half inches. You know, the piece was too large. So I thought, this, is this just an excuse? <laughs> Did they change their mind?
0: Well, you know? exactly. That's what I would be thinking myself.
2: Um, but he seemed quite flustered. You know, and, and he was very apologetic, and he's like, "I don't know what happened. I don't understand why this doesn't fit. We measured it. I'm sure it's going to fit. I'm so sorry." And um, so I said, "Well, and the guy you're talking to, he's like the house manager or something, right?" Yeah, her assistant. And so we move forward, and he he just was baffled. I felt sorry for him. I was actually consoling him. I'm like, "Okay, well, don't worry. Maybe something else will fit." <laughs> <laughs> then he calls so, me back, and he says, "Oh my God, it'll fit." I have the wrong tape measure, like this tape measure, I got it at a 99 cent store, it doesn't work, it's not the right, it's not the right measurements, and he proceeded, you know, he sent me a picture of the, of the inches matching up, and they were, you know, (laughs) off by, you know, like half an inch on three inches or something. And I was like, "What?" So
0: now we're to believe that there are tape measures being sold at ninety-nine cents stores that aren't actually the right measurements. Yeah. So he he said, "I must have picked this."
2: Yeah. He said, "I must have picked this Uh up." You know, like on this is must be a wrong tape measure. I think it'll fit. Give me a minute. And I said, "Well, do you want me to come over with my tape measure? You know, with the one I measured the piece on the wall with, and we can just measure." He goes, "No, no. I think, I think I'm figuring out." So hang on a second. Don't cancel anything. You know, just give me a, give me a a few more minutes and then he called me back and told me that this tape measure is actually like something's wrong with it and it you know and it's the wrong measurement and that you know that there's Chinese inches what the hell are Chinese inches that's what I said I'm like is this for real but he was genuinely you know distraught and when we got there, he showed the measurements, and one of his aunties was there. They were all from um, China. Um, they were very sweet, and I said, yes, you know, I'm so glad. And, she, and I said, you know, the inches? And she goes, yeah, well, that's Chinese inches. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. She sounded like, you know, she knew what, she like it was something real. <laughs> that like that's they're...
0: something that all Chinese people use.
2: Yeah, in China. Yeah, and I looked it up later. It's called a cun. Yes. Well, the con almost ruined my sale. No. <laughs> <laughs> also, here's something funny: is that they he actually measured a lot of different things in the house, including the kitchen cabinets, which he Why then. Why did you do that? But because they they you know they're redoing a few things, and so he measured uh, the kitchen cabinetry and had to remeasure all of that. You know, to get the right specs.
0: So he ordered a whole set of kitchen cabinetry on this,
2: this Chi- ton. Yes, on this Chinese measuring tape. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, 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 thanks for sharing the story. No worries, Danny. Are you, you going to go pleasure. back to dancing? Yes, we're going to go back to dancing in the gallery. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Talk okay. to you later, Keiko. Thank you.
0: Asian inches. Asian Inches. From now on, anytime somebody tells me about the sale that's in the bag, it's all but done. All that needs to happen is the money needs to hit our account. I think from now on, when I'm feeling a little bit skeptical, I'm gonna say Asian Inches. Kinda like to think that some of you guys are gonna say that too. Maybe it becomes a thing in our business. Wouldn't it be cool that a hundred years from now people in the art business keep on referencing Asian inches, and no one knows what the origin is? Asian inches. I'm going to assume the reason why some of you are listening to this podcast is because you're in the art business, and you are serious about what you do, and you want to know what's going on. Now, this is a great place to start, but it's not the only place to be. I'll tell you what I've been doing to keep up to date, For about 20-something years now, I have been a constant reader of Art World News. Art World News is our magazine. It's the magazine that talks about the industry itself. For 21 years, they've been covering this beat, talking from the small gallery owners to the big gallery owners, talking to the folks in the social media world, talking to folks who do framing, the people who are behind the molding manufacturing. Every little detail of the business behind the business, If you want to keep up with what's happening in our industry, pick up a copy of Art World News Now. What I'm about to tell you is true. Just today, someone in our business, someone I respect a lot, told me, I better hang on because right now there is a big trend going to get ready for this online. That the entire art gallery business eventually is, is going to become an online business. Do you know when the first time I heard this was what the trend was going to be in the art gallery business? 1994. Heard it again in 95, 96, 97, 98. You get the trend. I've been hearing this forever. And the fact of the matter is, we are a touch business, we are a business of meeting people, we are a business of actual experiences. It's where it's always happened, and quite frankly, it's where it's always going to happen. Why am I telling you all this in an ad? Because there is a place that all of that takes place. It takes place in the art fairs. In particular, it takes place at the fairs put on by our sponsor, Redwood Media Group, who you can find at redwoodmg.com. They put on Art Expo, as well as many, many more shows that take place throughout the year at many cities throughout the country. But coming up next, is the brand new Art Expo of Las Vegas, and followed by that, the old-time traditional one, the big one that we've been going to for a very long time, Art Expo of New York. I'll see you there. Today on the show, we have part two of my conversation with co-owner of the San Francisco Art Exchange, Jim Hartley. Now, as I said on the top of the show, You definitely don't have to have listened to part one to enjoy part two, but I highly recommend it. And if you did listen to part one, you know, in that first part, I gave a really nice bio or introduction for Jim before we got into the part one conversation. So I'm going to forego that this time. What I do want to talk to you about is my experience with Jim and his gallery. Now, as I've mentioned, maybe in the past, the San Francisco Art Exchange was the first gallery that I worked at It's where I... Made by Bones, if you will. It's uh, where I learned some of the basics of our field. But back then, I learned something much more important than just how to sell art. I learned how to survive in this field. I learned what was probably very key to lasting as long as I've lasted so far. And it was something simple but critical. That you have to be nimble. You have to be able to turn as the wind moves, you have to respond to things in the moment. Now, I could have figured that out over time, too. If you stick around in this business, you observe it, and you kind of get a sense that that is the person you need to be. However, even though we all can observe it, many aren't able to do it. And often the reason for that is the real thing I learned from the folks over at the San Francisco Art Exchange, Jim and his partner there, and then, and quite frankly, the other people who have worked with them too. And that is, you have to know what your role in this is. If you're to think of the art business as a sailboat in the water and the open seas, the turning on the dime, the twisting and turning, well, that's just the, the movement of the wind and the weather above. But the thing that keeps you upright, the thing that makes you survive, that's a, that's a keel that reaches deep into the water the longer and the deeper that keel is, the more likely you will not tip over, you will not come apart in the storms, that you will not break apart when you have to respond quickly. That metaphoric keel, well, that's that sense of knowing who you are that I'm talking about. And if ever there was an art dealer, and if ever there was an art gallery that had a clear understanding of who they are, deep feelings about that, it's Jim Hartley and the San Francisco Art Exchange.
1: We're in the area of pop culture. I mean, Theron and I have very arguably—I don't think it could be argued—you know, we we three markets were born in our gallery. Markets that didn't really exist before were born with us. And That's it, right,
0: actually, yeah. And it
1: came, and it came and it came through us just. Being fascinated with the art form and the message and what was came about as a result of it. I mean, you look, just you look at music. I mean, look at what you've done, and with music, look what we did with music. There was no, there really was no gallery level art market when we started with Ron wood.
0: No, it was a sideshow at John best. John Lennon
1: did some stuff, and but it was that was more celebrity, and he wasn't doing rock and roll. He was rock and roll, but he wasn't doing it. Uh, it, it didn't really exist. And when we teamed up with Ronnie after having done what we did with Vargas, we had, we had people that we had millions of dollars worth of sales of people selling buying into the six figures, beautiful original Vargas paintings and drawings. And when Phil Carson came along, okay.
0: Well, I'm going to roll you back a little bit here, though. Let's talk about Vargas before we get back into Ronnie Wood. Let's okay. let's put let's put one cart before one horse.
1: That's uh, a very appealing subject, Vargas. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, always a pleaser.
1: Maybe maybe just to lead into it, uh, uh, for those who might be listening, that Vargas painted very beautiful ladies, and he's incredibly famous for it. And starting back in as early as 1919, he worked with Ziegfeld of the famous Ziegfeld Follies in New York, which was the top of show business in its day. And many of the top Hollywood starlets came out of Ziegfeld and went to Hollywood after the depression hit in 29. Ziegfeld went broke. those very expensive shows, but Vargas was the painter who was doing Ziegfeld's painting, promotional posters and the like. Depression hit, they went broke. He had been there eleven years. He was quite well known in New York for that. He did a lot of society portraits, but he painted beautiful, beautiful ladies, and and his best work really came from this era. Even though he went on to become incredibly famous, and for most other, of us for other things.
0: Well, most of us really got to know him first, probably either through the pinups that we see in the movies from World War II. You know, the soldiers would pull out of Esquire magazine and paint on their airplanes as. Well as later on the uh, artwork he would do for Playboy magazine under the same uh, tradition, but you had an unusual experience. This is an artist who's as famous as any artist in American history in the category of American illustration, and I so mean so in the, the grand sense, of magazines, yeah. <laughs> right? Huge millions know who this artist hundreds is, of millions, probably. you probably. Know, <laughs> and through the length of the entirety of the century, but this had never gone into our galleries; it, it had, had never, never been, been re- for sale before.
1: Right. And he died and it still hadn't been for sale.
0: Exactly. It's almost serendipitous. It's an accident that you first kind of stumble into this.
1: I suppose if there's any uh, moral at the end of this story is do what you say you're going to do. The, the Theron and I had formed our little, our gallery. We, we spent, we spent a year up on the 10th uh, floor of a building and brokering from phones. And so and
0: you, then, you've now broken away from the gallery. You guys yeah, met we, each other out. We got
1: a space uh, uh, overlooking Union Square was our big uh, claim to fame. Looking out our window, we could see it. And uh, so we, we were brokering uh, from, from there and we were doing okay. We're doing well, uh, but we were, it was killing us not to be on the street to meet people. Nobody was walking into the 10th floor up there. We weren't New York, you know, San Francisco, you don't do that. And uh, especially in a building that didn't have a lot of other galleries. And so. It's going to be killing you in particular. No one knew to talk to an entire day going by. <laughs> no, we were aching and to get on, on the street and we wanted to be able to talk to more people. So we wanted to be in a better location where more people walking by and. And so we had we kind of had the dough to do that at some point and so we got a space on Geary where we are to this day but we we got in there and so we literally had only been in business for about a year and a half and our whole thing is we we formed ourselves a San Francisco art exchange like the New York Stock Exchange buys and sells blue chip stocks we fancied ourselves as uh, as an exchange through which one we could buy and sell blue chip artwork. Now, one time we even had kind of a corny idea of having a big board like the New York Stock Exchange has a Picasso and, you know, and all that that was that was silly and we got past it. Yeah, I'm so quickly, glad you know? that. I- <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those ideas that you you take and get rid you of. You would have figured it, that out it, it, about 3 days yeah, into putting up we the put board. It there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, people trusted us so We can. we didn't own a lot of art, you know, they consigned. We had beautiful Moreau aquatints and lithographs and we had yeah, Picasso, we had etchings, we had different things like that in the gallery, and the idea was, you know. But if someone came in and asked us for something else, Erte sculptures, Arte gouaches, I mean, there are other things that we we broker things like that. One day, a guy walks in, and he's I'm talking with him, and he says to me, "Can you get Vargas?" I said, "I'm sure I can. Uh, Yeah, let me let me look into it." And, And so. I didn't, all I knew about Vargas was Playboy at that time. I didn't know about all the rest of his career, which is incredibly important, but, so all I could think, to, I, I told him, I got his phone number, it was before the internet, I got his phone number, and I said, let me look into it. Well, when I say about do what you say, I had promised the guy I was going to look into it for him, and I have to believe a very large percentage of dealers, that would have been the end of it nothing would have happened. Or maybe a couple of phone calls to somebody dealer you knew, do you, have a You're var- right. do you have a Vargas? I don't <laughs> have
0: direct access to this. Yeah. It could be a lot of chase. He hasn't told me if I find it that I'm going to get a specific amount of money for my effort. There's no guarantees. So what did I do? I called Playboy.
1: I got on the phone and I just wouldn't get off the phone until they, w- and I wasn't a jerk about it. I just, listen, oh, thanks. You know, I said, I'm doing this. I know Vargas is there. Like, who's in charge of your art collection? And Vargas has been dead for a number of years at well, this point, too. Well, he had just too. died two years before. Okay. At that, at that point, he had died not even two years before, mm. about a year and a half before. But your timing sucks. Well, anyhow, so I, after talking to a few people, I got passed through to Barbara, who was in charge of their art collection, Um it was a very beautiful conversation. It wasn't like I want to sell something or that or that. It was like I really love to start. Guy's interested, and I'm just trying to figure out. I promised him I'd look, and the only one I could think to call was Playboy. It was Barbara, art department or archivist? Or she was in charge of she was an archivist. Yeah, she was mm-hmm. in charge of their collection and where it, where it got sent to be hung. It went to the clubs, or where did it go? And and so, but just so what she t- so the idea was is half interested in selling any of his Vargas. And you know, she told me in, in several charming ways that no, he really wouldn't be interested in doing that. But at some point she says to me, well, you know that Vargas died in December of 82. And she said, have you talked to his niece? I said, no, why, why would that be? And she, she said, well, his niece and nephew inherited all the artwork. Maybe you should talk to them. And then I asked the magic question: Do you have their number? <laughs> <laughs> they gave me the phone number. And I called them, and they, and they because he had died without a will, they were in probate, and it was like a two-year probate, so they couldn't sell anything either. And and so we had a conversation, and I, you know, I said, "Look, if you, I love your your uncle's work. If you're ever when when things clear probate and all of that, if you're ever thinking of." Might want to do a show in San Francisco. We'd love to talk to you about it. All of a sudden, one day, maybe six months later, I get a call from her. And she said, she called me mister in those days. Mr. Hartley, uh, are you still interested in doing that show in San Francisco? My Uncle's Art. I said, Absolutely. I'm jazzed, and Theron and I would get together, and wow, we had no clue if they were oils or what they were. We had no clue. All you ever saw was a magazine page. What was it? Was it airbrush? Was it watercolor? Was it? I mean, we we assumed most of them were oils at that point in our career. And I remember Theron and I, we went over to the Hyatt in Union Square. We went up there in a the place that just like a lobby upstairs outside a restaurant, and we were planning what we were going to do in our proposal and all that. And uh, it was sort of typewriter days, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and we sent a proposal to her. The idea was that we would do a show in San Francisco, 20 original paintings. And and keep in mind, had never been sold before. None of these had ever been seen in public.
0: Actually, it's the part I'm liking the, the most about this is that you two are getting excited just
1: on the concept that
0: you're showing it for the first time. Absolutely. You're, you're not at all, you know, uh, uh pessimistic about the fact that there's no proven market for it and you don't have any set customers. And
1: we weren't loaded with dough. And right.
0: <laughs> You're just excited to be doing something no, new and no different that no it. one's done.
1: right? Absolutely. So I, I remember Theron and I, we flew down and rent a car. and We go up to the house of, of of the lady who was the niece. She'd gotten the art out for us to see it so we could select the 20 pieces we'd have in the show. And there's paintings all, I mean, we we'll walk in and I'm looking around me and there are paintings dating back to 1909, you know, 1919, Ziegfeld, World War II. Play, I mean, they're, and they're all over the house. She's got them. Most of them aren't framed. They're leaning against the China closet. They're leaning against the sofa, the dining room table. And Theron and I for two solid days are down on our hands and knees Salivating. Well, they're not hard to look at in the first place. They're obviously beautiful ladies, but but what blew us away is man, this watercolor was unbelievable. His control of the medium was just yeah, beyond absolutely. comparison. No nope. he's as good a watercolorist as anyone's ever been. But he didn't get credit because people couldn't see past the subject matter, you know, to give him credit for what he created.
0: Well, also in a magazine, you don't know what the medium is.
1: I had never had a clue. Certainly as a young guy looking at Playboy, I had no clue. Well, and the watercolor was so subtle that people thought it was airbrush. I mean, back after the point that airbrush showed up. I didn't think anything. I just thought, wow, what a great picture. (laughs) I'm talking about as a teenager. (laughs) 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 What came out of that is, you know, we didn't do a show with 20 paintings. A month later, I drove down with my wife. I brought back 111 originals and and so we brought it back we had a show for the entire summer of 1985 with this artwork it was very successful we got world press uh again we didn't have money we plunked down everything we had basically we i can remember we hired we didn't really have we couldn't afford a pr firm but somehow we got a hold of a lady who had worked in pr she was really a bit a bit a bit unusual but uh but very brave. And she would get on the phone and she would sing to publications and get their attention. And we got World Press, UPI took it, uh, AP, it went worldwide. And the wire services were in newspapers everywhere. Uh, got a clipping service, came back from the Philippines and I don't know, wherever. I mean, all over the world. And uh, even the, the San Francisco paper, the art critic panned the show. But you know he took one and a half pages of the Sunday newspaper to pan it filled up one and a half pages with tons of pictures and we were swamped his panning of the show was so was like a gift to me because listen to how he panned it this this is almost an exact quote it's been years but I can just about quote it exactly why would an artist do with a paintbrush watercolor paintbrush that which could so easily be accomplished with an airbrush <laughs> thank you that's a great pan it didn't it, it it ultimately didn't matter because what happened is tons of people saw a full, uh, think about how big a sunday paper is i mean this full size newspaper one whole page and a half of another one with pictures throughout build it and they will come i mean people Swamped to the gallery. I mean, it was weird. oh sure, but <laughs> packed, nonstop
0: <laughs> with the press. I mean, in retrospect, it sounds like the perfect formula. You know, the, the subject matter is obvious, uh, as in obviously interesting, but and and people have a relationship to the history of it, and it's a compelling story. On top of which, it's a movie. But you know, as I say, in retrospect, you know, you, you see it so many times in our business that was missed for the you know for the entirety of his career no gallery ever had that thought no one ever called him up no one ever gir- offered him a it was show girly art
1: but the society had to get to that point too right i mean it wasn't we represented it as an art form and that and i know i mean the, the the estate was 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 wise because what they understood they weren't putting it in a gallery selling girly art and they had when when i first talked to her i remember her telling me that she had a list that I was number 17 on her list of people who had called with interest. So I'm putting you down right now. I got kind of a long list. I said, you're like number 17, but I like you and, and we'll keep in contact.
0: So all the other galleries couldn't see past the subject matter?
1: Yeah. First of all, I don't think a lot of galleries were calling her. I think it was, you know, people that were sort of in the magazine business and things uh-huh. like that, you know, that were, it was, it was that, that sort of thing, but she saw, I have to imagine was that here's a gallery selling Chagall, Miro, Picasso. That's going to show my uncle's artwork. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. It caught it, the idea that it would be seen as an art form as art, not as girly art. Well, I'm sure in her mind, you know, was a good place to start <laughs> with their with class. Their, at this time, we had no exclusive. We had a three-month show.
0: And that cuts both ways. The people who were hopefully collected from you are buying that art from a gallery who has Moreau absolutely. in Chicago. Oh, absolutely. No, it was mm-hmm. a
1: perfect storm in, in many ways. We were young and we weren't tutting it because it was really exciting to be able to do something nobody had done. So we put everything we had into it. Maybe another gallery would have looked at it as a show.
0: It didn't come with new objections to it.
1: We wondered about that, uh, whether we'd be picketed or whatever. And you know that was one of the wonderful uh, early—I don't know if I'd call it a surprise. I probably uh, a mild surprise, pleasant surprise, is that it didn't happen. Women like the art as much as men, but for their own reasons. Mm But probably not the same reason I might like it. But you know, they um, and so. We did it because we saw it as an art form, not some concept, of, oh, wow, well, we'll do it we didn't do it on purpose. it just was what we did. It was just who we were and and how we looked at it it was It was very sincere, very genuine on our part, and we were pinching ourselves initially wow to be able to do this sort of thing and have such a a treasure of a collection never before <laughs> made available. So our enthusiasm and energy, but also the fact that we were art dealers. I, I know what has happened to us. If, there were, if I had to boil it down to any one thing, uh, to whatever success we've had in developing this and, and two other major markets, uh, which became multi-million markets when they were zero markets, basically, or almost, uh, is that we're art dealers. That and what does that the, mean? That was the difference. You know, we were art dealers other people doing selling these or trying to sell or get involved in these sorts of things didn't look at it as an art form. Mm-hmm. They looked at it as a collectible, they looked at it as a hot check, they looked at it as I don't know, bad boy rock and roll or they you know it was it was it was a lifestyle thing, but it wasn't art. And we saw it as art. We saw the Burgess's artwork uh and and we helped people to other people that came anyone that came and talked to us would walk out getting it (laughs) as artwork they would and and the same thing happened with rock and roll when you know what we did with Vargas did so well it it was really palpable I mean we we really really were doing extremely well and we started doing prints and they were selling we probably sold I don't know seven million dollars worth of Vargas limited edition prints over a several year period, when we were working in that area, um,
0: I don't want to brush by something. I think you hit a very interesting topic. You know, you kept on saying we were art dealers, and you're mentioning how that controls the context in which it is seen. And I don't know if I've ever entirely thought about it that way either. That you know, we have this expression between my partner, you know, Daniel and I, that we say all the time about the business we do, and we'll often say the meeting is the message. Meaning, just the mere fact that I came to you says something significant. And I'm wondering if that sort of applies in those categories. That the fact that an art dealer in an art gallery, a professional who works with artwork and has the choice to work with whatever kind of artwork they want to, is a person who's standing in front of you and not just talking about that piece that's on the wall, but enthusiastically, genuinely enthusiastically talking about it. That in and of itself is the credibility, the message of credibility that goes maybe far beyond any other argument you can make for why this is art. I don't need to explain that this is art or this has a place in the art world because it's in the art world being represented by an art dealer. Well, it,
1: it, all I just heard from you was truth. You know, that, that's what I hear. Or is it too obvious to say? No. I, I I love you saying it. I love you feeling it. I mean, you, I, but honestly, I don't think I've ever thought about things in that term exactly. I I have always. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Not neater, neater. I mean, it's just how I've always looked oh, no, at that's it. Fine. Yeah, it's just how I've always looked at it.
0: At least not with that degree of ease. I mean, I used to have this message when you know I, I ran galleries, you know, on my own. And uh, I was just talking about it earlier today with an art dealer. And I said, you know, anytime anyone would challenge me on the question of, well, this is great. I love it. I can see you love it. Uh, I would love to have it on my wall. But how do I know this has any value? You know, that this has real significance in the art world. And I would go into this whole speech and say, look, you're in Union Square or wherever I happen to be with the gallery at the time. I can tell you what my rent is. And I can tell you what every square inch on this gallery is, you know, wall wise. And I could hang any piece of artwork I want on these walls. The mere fact that I lend these valuable gallery walls to the art that I choose to put on it, that is your answer.
1: I've said variations of that exact thing many times in my career. Yeah. Maybe
0: um, I was copying you.
1: <laughs> well, uh, no, I know. I have I, no, I mean, I, I it's no sincere idea like- about that. But no, but I. I get- I can remember early on that uh, it was it was sort of I, I didn't know any when I was doing that first month. <laughs> and I didn't know the artists. I knew I learned something about the most famous, but they had other artists there. The $750 item I sold wasn't a Moreau. And so I even then, just almost instinctively, if somebody asked me why I was worth $750, I said, you know, all I can tell you is that. This famous publisher, who could publish, I'm sure, is is deluged with artists that would love to have their art published. Has chosen this artist to publish, and they can publish. It's just very similar to what you just said. At a time when I didn't know anything, but it was just for me. It was instinctive, you know. Somebody went through the money to make this edition a print at a time when you had to print the whole edition <laughs> and spend serious money. Well, that's that's <laughs> been
0: one of the biggest changes in the art business exactly. <laughs> ever.
1: Yeah, That, yeah, it's not
0: a quarter of a million dollar proposition to start publishing an artist anymore. Print
1: one by one now, if you want to do it. A couple that, hundred
0: bucks yeah. at a time. Exactly. You're in business. Yeah,
1: they cost more per sheet, but <laughs> your cash flow is much better. I, I think another interesting thing that you and I both experienced that uh, played into our success too is that we understood the limited edition market. Um, it had been limited edition prints by Moreau and Chagall and and other artists. <clears throat> and at the time, for example, rock photography, there was zero market. I mean, there were a few of the photographers, like a Jim Marshall, for example, were maybe selling a piece in a bar stool with a six gun in his belt. You know, maybe trading it for some substance or for cash for him to be able to perpetuate his lifestyle.
0: And we should make a note here, by the way, you know, San Francisco Art Exchange has gone through a number of generations uh, or incarnations, I should say. And if you go into your gallery on most days of the year, you're going to see a lot more photography than just about anything because else. Because most of
1: rock and roll was photography. Mm-hmm. But, but
0: in just the fact that you became a primary rock and roll gallery, that evolved into you know, over time too.
1: We owe it to Ronnie, Ronnie mm-hmm. Wood. I mean, because uh, they entrusted us to be his first continuing dealer. He'd done a couple of shows here and there before us, but there was nobody, no one stuck. And when we began in 1987, did our first show, we were his first dealers and distributors. And uh, and because we had, as I started to say this earlier, Because we had sold many, many millions of dollars worth of Vargas by that time and had sold paintings up into the six figures by that time, then, you know, Ron Wood's manager, Phil Carson, was coming by buying other things. But the palpability, the palpable nature of what was going on, you walked in there, you could just feel it in your skin. I mean, it was a happening place. The Vargas was just booming. And it was like, at the time, Mick and Keith were in their blood feud. Ronnie, obviously, was a stone. He thought they were breaking up. He thought the stones were done. And he wanted to go and do his artwork. He'd been an artist since childhood. And he went to Ealing Art College. Very good artist. And he wanted to go do that. If you're a stone, where are you going next? What band are you going to next? He, and that's the thing about him. He's a real artist, too. You know, it's, it's in his fiber the one thing painting in a way i suppose maybe it was asked do you think you can do what, for ronnie what you did for vargas a dead artist by the way it was like sounded great what does he do <laughs> and we, again they mailed his pictures no internet yet and that was really cool and so we we did a major we did a show he was traveling to with a book that he had done and uh, pretty soon we were selling millions of dollars worth of ronnie's artwork too And it made sense, didn't it? Think about it. We had millions of dollars worth of sales of beautiful ladies into the six figures for a painting. And you think someone that liked that subject might be a rock and roll fan. (laughs) Pretty likely. And so when we started representing, I'm sure Phil was wise, very wise man, or he wouldn't have had the position he had. He saw that somehow that here's here's maybe a perfect place to Ronnie to put his toe in the water.
0: And he gives some understanding of who Phil is. He's also the agent for Led Zeppelin, uh, as far as I know, still to this day, as well as a number of other very significant well, was, folks yeah, in the rock foreign, business. Foreigner,
1: he was working with foreigner. He was Jimmy Page's manager yeah, at one point, exactly. Yeah, no, no. He, this is no small deal. Yeah. No, no, a no, no, serious guy. Uh oh, he was the one that he's the one that introduced us to introduce Roger Dean to yes. For example, mm-hmm. Roger Dean did the Yes albums, Uriah Heep, Prague, a lot of the Prague. So was it
0: Phil that brought Roger Dean to you as well?
1: Well, no, uh, yeah, actually it was, yeah.
0: I hope you're sending a Christmas card to Phil every
1: year. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun, and we were doing stuff nobody ever did, and and that's same I guess, drive. That's my juice. Uh, let me let me go back for just a moment though to Ronnie, because sure. we can't we can't go past in a conversation, especially between you and I. We can't go past without giving credit where it's due. If it weren't for Ron Wood, this market certainly wouldn't have happened when it happened uh, or the way it happened if it weren't for Ronnie and his artwork and us connecting with him at that time. Uh, because it, 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 it just, if you take all those elements, we could sit and talk about it for days, but all those elements that we've already talked about just came together. It was a confluence right then mm-hmm. that, that ignited a market. And with them going on tour then and setting up shows in cities where they would be on tour, um, it 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 took off. And his limited edition prints sold, and his paintings. Which I mean, when we first started, you know, it was uh, maybe 10 grand or so, you know, I think there was maybe one of the larger pieces was up in the 20 K range.
0: Yeah, I remember.
1: Uh, it was, a you know, and I, we probably would never sell that one, but you know, maybe we can sell this eight K one, you know, it was almost like, you know, but it, it happened and, and we, I still remember, uh, I don't know, a couple of years in maybe as things were really picking up Uh, and expanding that a guy, Ronnie did a little chat on AOL, a little chat room deal where people could call in and they had a moderator. There was a fellow up in Canada, uh, out the question, Hey, Ronnie, where can I get your paintings? And he answered him, San Francisco art exchange in San Francisco, you know, you can get them there. And so the fellow calls us up, and he bought a number of prints, and then we, you know, became friends and talked about that. And he ended up buying the original painting for Philadelphia eighty-one at fifty thousand dollars. I mean, that, every re- that was by far the highest price paid for Wood, probably any rock and roll artwork at the time. Uh, and it was just you know, we couldn't believe that it happened. You know, it did. And now, of course. Uh, we didn't make the sale, but the, the, up until our, our recent show with Pink Floyd, the highest price I'm aware of anyone ever paying for any kind of rock and roll artwork was a million dollars, which was paid for Ronnie Wood's original beggar's banquet. It's
0: a little more than that, which, actually. Which
1: was sold to our client. I mean, we we didn't sell it as it turned out, and I'm not complaining, <laughs> but it was a client that, uh, that we had introduced, and he had already bought uh, several million from us before he bought that painting. So as far as I'm concerned, that was our sale. <laughs> <laughs> well, you educated him. Yeah. Yeah. So that be, so that was awesome. And, and that sale has stood for quite some time as the highest price ever paid for a rock and roll artwork until a show that I've just completed now. Theron and I have just, uh, we are just now completing. It's still on, What's left of it is still on the walls, what hasn't sold, but we'll be taking it down this coming week but it's all the original artwork by Gerald scarf of the wall, pink Floyd, the wall he's 81 years old now. He's never sold the art. I did something really cool that I, I won't speak about publicly, but was a seven figure deal last year that led me to him. And, uh, and it it gave me a good entree with him. And I floated the question at some point, I know you did the art. Do you have any left? It turns out I've got it all. He's never sold any of it. It's never been for sale. So we just had the first ever exhibition of the entire, well, I represent the entire works, but the best pieces uh, from the wall, including the scream and the mother of people who know, Pig Floyd has uh, all the main, the original, uh, conceptual paintings that were, were the concepts for the movie and for the figures that were used in the concerts and such. But we sold a painting in this show at $1.85 million. And that, way by far, is the highest price ever paid for rock and roll artwork. And you know, the fellow that ended up buying the $1.85 million original Scream is a, obviously a very wealthy man. Uh, has sold a company and building others now. And he just said, I wouldn't be who I am without the wall. He said, it changed my life. You know, and uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, by its nature, it's, it's another part, another leg of a, maybe a 20-page, 20-page, 20-leg stool is that it's popular, but when we do something by its very nature, it gets a second look. You put out a press release, it gets if you're doing it for the first time, if it's the wall. <laughs> it it has it has that built-in uh glitz, if you will. If people listen, they look, you see Marilyn Monroe. I mean, we're we're dealing in many other areas or in film, and in fact now our film is is maybe uh, even starting to compete with our rock and roll credential. So we've got some really major film things we got, we now have exclusives on that we're beginning to promote and press. And uh, so it's across the board, whether it's civil rights, you talk about Shepard Ferry earlier, we're doing an Obama exhibition right now of the lady who was the exclusive photographer during the, uh, uh, the entire campaign, the 2008 campaign. It's, you know, the, the pop culture is us. It's our lives. It's our lifetime. And we're part of it. Now, we were observers, but we're part of it. And every one of us had our own experience with it. The, the artist has a story. We have a story. The, the moment that's captured in the painting or the art or the phot- photograph has a story. But another story, and the most important one, is the relationship of that person now standing in front of that that artist's artwork or photograph that they had their own personal interconnection or relationship with that time in their lives and what was going on with them. You want to call it... um, you know memories uh, nostalgia sure it's that but it's so much more than that you think about what did 60s rock and roll do i mean corny maybe but it it got through the iron curtain it seeped through the bamboo curtain it gave voice to people that didn't have a voice it gave words it gave it gave a tone it gave a meaning to people that otherwise couldn't couldn't uh, couldn't state it or couldn't figure out how to say it or didn't realize why they felt the way they did and suddenly they could they could reach out and caress that and say yeah that's 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 what I'm talking about people it spoke for people so art form yes ma'am it's like we if someone came to me tomorrow with a great painting of Mick Jagger I'd look at it and say man that's beautiful but I wouldn't be interested in representing it it's not who we are we're dealing with the art that comes from the pop culture, not of the pop culture. Mm, mm-hmm. So observing and painting or, or doing something like that uh, isn't isn't our thing. And again, we're not snobby about it. It's just not our charter.
0: Hey, I am sorry to break in, but I just wanted to point something out to you. We're about halfway through my conversation here with Jim, and that means one of a couple things. Either way, you fell asleep during the show and this is just playing on and on and on. Or it might mean you actually really like the show and you're having a good time and you wish I would shut up and go back to our conversation with Jim Hartley. And I will in just a moment. But since I'm pointing out that you're having a good time and enjoying this show, I'd like to ask a favor of you. And no, I'm not looking for money or anything like that. I'm asking that you help spread the word. It's about the only marketing plan that we have here at the Art Dealer Show. So if you could take the time somewhere along the line to tell a friend who's in the art business and passing that you like the art dealer show yourself and that you take a listen, please do so. Maybe make a mention of it on the old social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is that you guys use. That's it. And for the rest of you, the art dealer show was your favorite show. Make sure to tell everybody you love the art dealer show. Go back to sleep. You know, it's interesting. I've had a whole series of thoughts as you were talking about that. And by the way, I'm 100% on board with you on all of that. I was wondering to myself at first if you didn't wind up going down that path that started relatively serendipitous. Right? You know, a guy comes in your gallery and he's interested in Vargas, and Vargas eventually leads to Ronnie Wood. And Ronnie Wood has led to a thousand other things in the world of popular culture and art, as well as Vargas has. And I wonder, as you know, you feel the enthusiasm coming from you, if you would have stayed in this career or have been happy in this career, if you today were an artist, you know, selling Chagall's still. You were selling more of those modern masters like Picasso or some guy who paints seascapes, whatever it is. Would would you be as impassioned? Would you stuck with it this much? And then my next thought was, well, maybe it's not just that serendipity. Maybe you found your way there because in some respects, it's the purest form of the other thing that you were describing. When we were talking earlier on about how exciting it is, to connect a person with a piece of artwork, to be a part of that relationship and to take him through that, for lack of a better metaphor, but seems to be the appropriate one, the birthing process of that taking place, you know, uh, the midwifery of it, you know, that maybe you were because of that taste you had for that kind of excitement, for that purity of emotion and personal importance would have been drawn to this no matter what. If Ronnie Wood's agent wasn't just across the street, if you know Vargas didn't just happen to fall into its place, would he have wound up here in the same place anyway?
1: I, I, you know what? It might surprise you to think I haven't thought about that a lot. I I, I have thought of it on occasion. Uh, what would we have done otherwise? Would we still be selling Seagal Moreau maybe for record price? I don't know. I have no idea. I kind of doubt it somehow. Uh have. I uh, you, uh, you want to know something. I, I I I for people out there that that care or would pay attention. Let me tell you about something. And I want to take my hat off to my partner, uh, basically of half a lifetime now, thirty four years. We've owned fifty fifty. Uh, I want to tell you that we've never had one fight. We've never had one argument. We've never had a cross word with each other. Not once in 34 years. I don't know how many partnerships could say that. Uh, some might say that's a weakness. When we first started to de- decide to have a, a business together, we spent quite a bit of time for a solid month going back and forth, his house, my house, kitchen table, pencil, paper. We we just came up with a thousand different I concepts of what if this happens? What if that happens? How will we react if this happens? What will we do if this happens? And we just, we just agreed on everything. I mean, we never found anything we didn't agree on. And uh, believe me, it was an intensive uh, grilling of, of, of situations and facts with one another. Uh, and at the end of that, we made a promise to each other um, that I would think would probably be hard for most people to keep this promise, but we've kept it. And the promise we made to each other is that if we ever don't agree on something, we just won't do it. And we've kept that promise for 34 years. I wonder, uh, we have a
0: semi-spoken, somewhat unspoken condition like that, I'd say, between my partner and myself. But I think we articulate a reason for that, that I wonder if it's behind yours, if if you're coming from a similar place. And for us, it's not just out of a mutual respect, but that's there. It's because we believe that without our equal participation, neither of us can do what we do nearly as well as we do it together, that neither of us want to try to do it without the full support of the other partner. If they're not on board, then I know I can't do this to its fullest, even if it is a good idea. I can't do it as good as it should be done without that other person's investment.
1: With us, with us, I know at least the, a major part of it is that mutual respect. We have so much respect for one another that if we notice that the other one's not agreeing, then I, I would immediately think, well, maybe I ought to be thinking more about what I'm saying here. Let me hear why. Um, Theron and I, as you said, starting off this, as I recall, that talking to me might be an entirely different story than talking to him in some respect.
0: I was wrong.
1: Uh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, it's been 100% different. Yeah. I mean, we are are different, and that's why in 1996, at some point, we... Things were getting so busy, and and we were we we'd operate as mom and pop for a long time, where we sat in the same office and made our decisions together and tr- plotted ahead, <laughs> and and uh, we just at some point we figured we we need to sort of have some separation of power here in order to just more efficiently handle our business. So when we did that, and that was 1996, I remember a meeting when I was living in Hillsboro at the time, and we met at my house and sat at the dining room table. And that day we decided that from now on, that basically I was going to full-time put my efforts into the sales end of the business. And he was going to put his full, his full efforts into the sourcing side of the business, as well as the administrative side of the business. Mm-hmm. And God bless him, and he has—he's been my savior because what what he has done for years now is he keeps the heat off of me, so I can stay positive to sell. So when sticky stuff comes along, he's the guy that deals with it. I mean, not just—we're not too small a company that you both don't have to deal with them sometimes. But yeah, I couldn't do it without him. I couldn't, you know, I've. A lot of these, major, you know, these, we've made virtually every record sale there is to make in the areas that we're involved. And I'm pretty much have been the one, We yeah, again, we're a small company. We all get involved in some, but I'm pretty much the guy who's making them happen, whether it's one of our sales staff starting or whatever. I'm very much involved most of the time. Uh, and I don't, I don't say, no, Jim did all the sales. No, that's not the case. But but that's that's where... I have an ability to, without being distracted, to pursue that because of what he does. And he, he as you might know, artists are a tough bunch to work with. No. <laughs> and Theron, his patience, amazing patience, kindness. He's, he's an artist himself. He has the deepest respect for artistic achievement and thought and creativity. And artists love him. I mean, there are some of the there are a number of artists that you you think of a while ago, we were talking about why did Scarf come with us? Um I don't know. no one got, like you said, no he didn't go with anyone yet till now. And you think about Storm Thorgerson who did Dark Side of the Moon, he did led Zeppelin. He was a brilliant genius So the, the the one person I refer to as a genius creative genius. I mean, Storm was impossible, but not for Theron. I mean, they became great friends. Uh they'd had Storm's gotten into fights where, you know, he ended up with a stroke and and the manager of, of Floyd ended up with a heart attack, you know, after after having a, a, a battle with each other. Wow. But we were friends till his death. He sent a beautiful video to us just weeks before he died, uh, talking about us as friends and his favorite gallery and, and uh, that, you know, that's one of the great things If I can say anything at all. One of the things I really down deep inside, I get so much satisfaction from and pride from is these artists didn't, weren't making money. They weren't, there was no market. Guy like storm, for example, here's storm. Dark side of the moon. Wish you were here. Houses of the holy. I mean, if you're into music, man, these are giants. But there was no money in it. They they got the their project, they got paid for it, and they're on to the next thing. They made a living. I know personally, we knew Storm Soil, he wasn't a wealthy man. But when we got involved with him toward the, the last years of his life, I mean, we probably sold several million dollars worth of the art that he never would sell before because there wasn't any money in selling it. What was the point? I still remember in two thousand two, the highest price at the time ever paid for a rock and roll photograph was fifteen hundred, and people would roll their eyes at you, really, even to say that that kind of price was you fifteen hundred? Are you killing me, kidding me? You know, if it was more than a hundred, two hundred bucks, you know, you'd get this poo poo look from people. And Robert Freeman, who did five of the Beatles covers. He did Meet the Beatles, Beatles for Sale, Rubber Soul, Hard Day's Night Help. Well, we had a friend in England who had a connection with him. And we got a few, of not album originals, but other kinds of pieces in. Now, this is a good story. You know, it won't take long. We kept bugging through our friend because I was thinking, well, you know, if we had the originals to the album covers, now those would be more valuable. I mean, millions of people had those. They, you know, they went to the store and got them and sat there with their buddies and listened, watched, read the liner notes, all that. And so, those might be more valuable. So we started floating out. Can we? How about? Can you get us original and Meet the Beatles or Beatles for Sale or Rubber Soul or whatever? And we tried and tried and tried in a in a benign but harassing, kind of somewhat of harassing him, but just just persistent, uh, benignly persistent. And eventually, all of a sudden, one day, in in the door comes this beautiful, I, I still think the most beautiful Beatles photograph I've ever taken, original of the Beatles for sale cover. Beautiful photograph. and Basically, with, with a note that said, okay, here's one, sell it for 15000 and I'll give you another one. <laughs> uh, you just heard me say that, maybe the highest price ever paid for a rock photograph up till that time, and it was a huge outlier was fifteen hundred.
0: And now we're looking at tenfold.
1: Now we're looking at ten times. Within two weeks we sold it. So
0: that that collector who made that first leap, who literally was the first person to buy something that made a tenfold jump on the last highest piece that got sold.
1: I know him to this day, by the way. But did he And you know he won't sell it.
0: I'm not surprised.
1: <laughs> None at
0: all. Did he ask at any point? Is this a high price for this? What is the highest amount that these things go for? Was that even in the he conversation? Knew that he was
1: ten times the. Cr- he
0: was fully clear on that. Oh yeah. <laughs> did you ask him? You know, what is your rationalization? I mean, I know it's a dangerous thing I to mean, ask.
1: Sense I didn't at the time of the sale. And what did it. he say? Well, I think what he did is he acknowledged the fact that he he was caught up in my enthusiasm that we were doing something absolutely groundbreaking that this artist wouldn't sell. And, and that, you know, here now I've been given this opportunity to offer it. And that's his price. I mean, in the end, but by my, my excitement about having it, I think he was caught up in, in the excitement of something that millions of people loved and, respected and the fame of it and that you know, one's, one's never been made available before and finally he's willing to sell it.
0: Well, if you also think about it, $15,000 is a relatively small amount of money to pay to change the course of history of something.
1: Well, he, and he knows he did it. He yeah. knows that that sale did change. <laughs> uh, would have happened to the next And and again, then we sold a second one very soon thereafter. Of course, then we had a comp. See, the market didn't have comps. That's how it works. That's what it was. The market right. had no comps. And we suddenly had a ten times comp. You
0: know, I've tried a couple times and then learned you can't do this, but always have wanted to see it work when I have shown a piece to a collector and it's a similar situation where you can make a very valid case at why this piece is so much more than anything that is sold to date, so not just by market, but often by an individual artist. Or they'll say, well, what's the most ever spent You know, on a painting by that artist? And you say, well, honestly, this will be the highest amount. And then they ask you, well, then what justifies that? And the honest answer, which as I said, I tried twice, never even got close to working, is the second you buy this painting, we will have that answer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: You know, that's all it is, but you know, very few people want to be the first to drink the water.
1: But at the same time, uh, most of our record prices were so much a record price that uh, we repeatedly have had people that have done just that, right. knowing that they were doing just that. Well, now that's but, some of the excitement of it too, isn't it? Being the market maker again, <laughs>
0: proving that you have a. A relationship with this business—it makes me wonder. You know, you would if you would have an entirely different life, or even as exciting of a life, if you didn't go down
1: this course. It's hard to imagine. Yeah. But, but favorite guy is Yogi Berra, right? When you get to the fork in the road, take it. I tell people I got a drawer full of forks, baby. I would. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let me ask a question that might fall flat. But when I first started this podcast, I brought it up to you and I said, you know, Jim, at some point, I want to get you on the mic I mean, you're very much on my mind. And and, and you smiled and you were nice about it. And then about a year after that or so, you gave me a call and you said you had been in the hospital a couple months ago. And uh, as you were going through recovery from, I guess it was major surgery, right? Uh, It occurred to you that this might be a decent thing to do. And I was wondering, we didn't get into it at the time, but what was on your mind?
1: Uh, You're asking me, did I want to have a chance to speak with you in this mode while I was still living? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes, but... I mean, it was a life-threatening surgery uh, that I had, and it wasn't clear how it would come out. I had an aneurysm, and it was a very serious surgery, and, and it it, 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 I could have died um, uh, and uh, or it could have left me, you know, unable uh, to to work or continue even if I survived it. those those were possibilities. Um, but it, it came out fine. But I, I'm sure that uh, pro- I'm sure that it. it I would have felt like it would have been nice. Pity if I hadn't had a chance to talk with you, a good friend and someone who really does understand and been through what we've been through and, and, uh, and, and picked up where where we left off and in in a couple of areas and did amazing job and got Ronnie Woods artwork around the world. I mean, so we, you know, we are joined at the hip and it would have been a pity not to have had what we've just now had here today. I, I've loved it. I mean, it's very natural for me, as you might be able to tell. I know it is for you. Um, somebody said when I left the gallery today, uh, well, good luck. And I, <laughs> I said, I said, well, what don't do I let need? him win. I said, well, what, good, what kind of good luck do I need? I said, I'm going to speak to a very dear friend about something I've been doing my whole life, <laughs> or at least most of my life. <laughs> um, you know, I guess what I'm going
0: for, and I, and I realize we've done it to some great extent, you know, you've got an incredible story. And there's something very special about being able to talk about that story in some entirety, you know, not just in sections, but where it it gives itself context, it has its own, you know, arc to it. And in that, it better describes the person who had lived that. And I, I think there's a value to it. But wanted to make sure that there was nothing that has been left out, that there aren't any specific, you know, deep and important feelings you have about the profession that you chose, uh, that maybe is not something that all people who have, you know, walked that path have, you know, people experience things in different ways and deeper than others.
1: I love, th- I love things. I love sayings that are trite, uh, because there's the truth there, you know, they, they, they become stale because they've been said so many times, they've been said so many times because they're true. <laughs> and it's nice to go back to truth. And if I could say anything to any art dealer, uh, if you haven't gone down the road I'm going to talk about now, change. Uh, if you haven't really gotten started in it, take this to heart. And it's just simple, tell the truth. Use the truth to its greatest advantage you know, we can, there, there's a truth. And, and um, I, I am I got it from my father before a New Yorker. Uh, if you were a liar, you just he wouldn't talk to you again. He just wouldn't deal with you. I uh, grew up with that. Um, and when you sell, there's a million opportunities to lie and you can't. And you know what? It takes a lot of work to be able to tell to do what i just said is to tell the truth to your to your and the client's best advantage and do you exaggerate i don't think so i think if you're really excited about what you're talking about you're not exaggerating you know if you're if you're in a sense lying you're if you if your excitement is a lie then that's not telling the truth so you got to get to that place and if you can't get to that place you're doing the wrong thing you should be doing something else. I'm proud of what Taryn and I have done. I mean, we didn't do it alone. Hey, we did on the backs. You know, we didn't sing the songs. We didn't make some like it hot. You know, we didn't do the 2001 Space Odyssey. You know, we didn't write the. We didn't do perform those songs. We didn't tour the world. We weren't the artists that for very little money traveled with them and took the pictures or did the paintings and just barely made a living at it. We didn't do any of that. Uh, what we did was respect that. And earlier when I was saying is that, you know, the artists that we represent, you know, they they've had a living in their older years that they wouldn't have had otherwise. And and many of them, most of them would not have ever even attempted to sell their artwork if there weren't a a, a method or a manner or an opportunity to to make their art available to people who appreciate what it is and uh, not just because there's 50 of them and boy when they sell out they're going to be worth a whole lot more but because of what it means to you because of your personal connection with that artwork in your home uh And days of stress or times with your wife in the evening or with the music on or the movie on that you can nestle or sit back with it, look at that, and those memories come back. Uh, Those feelings, those things like the guy that bought The Scream changed his life. The philosophy that Roger had written into those songs. Yes, why does a guy pay more money than anybody ever paid for a rock and roll artwork? No. Did I do that? No. Roger Waters did that. No, Sir Barrett did that. <laughs> no, not Jim Hartley. Not San Francisco Art Exchange. Uh, but somehow we respected the art form and those that had done it. And as a result, that respect was returned to us in the honor of being able to represent it. And... Um, and we're finding that people value it. And so, what's the, what was the value to this gentleman? Well, in his mind, he got full value. And frankly, we had a couple other people that would have bought it too had he not bought it at that price. That called in a little too late. Did I answer your question, or was that a, was that yeah, okay, okay as an alternative answer? <laughs>
0: You know how I know you answered my question because you once again have inspired me. It's there's not many people I get to talk to in this industry that have an ability to make me feel a little bit more excited and a little bit more proud about what I do. So I think that's a that's a great way to end. Thank you. Thank you for before and thank you for this.
1: Thanks for hearing me out. <laughs>
0: Wow. Was that not worth it? If you did not listen to part one, don't you desperately, desperately now want to listen to part one? Look, uh, I want to thank Jim Hartley. I want to thank him for his time. I also want to give a shout-out for the folks over at the San Francisco Art Exchange that's a little bit out of the ordinary. San Francisco Art Exchange is looking for a brand-new sales director at the gallery. And as you can imagine... It is not only a job that they take very seriously about who is going to fill the role, but one that can make a big difference in any art dealer's career. It is well worth your time to go explore that if you're looking for a new position within the gallery world. For details on this, you can just go look up sfae.com. There's also an ad up at our website, artdealer.show, and you can learn more about it from there. In addition to thanking Jim, I want to thank some of you guys, too, for the folks that continue to write some really nice stuff on our reviews over at iTunes and have also sent us some nice messages uh, through uh, Twitter and Facebook. And as a matter of fact, just in the past week, uh, we got a very nice one that kind of sticks out, and I want to give them a shout-out as well. I got a note from Eric Wall. He is a recently former art dealer who's out in Sweden, Uh, He only recently left his gallery career to go start his own painting career. And also along with that, uh, I like to think inspired a little bit by this podcast, who he has expressed being a fan of, uh, to start a podcast of his own on contemporary art. He's got six episodes in the can that he says is going to be launching very soon. And as soon as he gets it out there, we'll probably set up a link for that too. I'm actually pretty excited to be listening to it myself. And by the by, one last thing here, if you have any suggestions for future guests of the Art Dealer Show, uh, please make them known. Send us an email, a tweet, a text, whatever it is, I'd like to hear what they are. So, until next time, may the coconuts fall at your feet, and may none of them be Asian inches. Good night, my art dealers. Good night. You can find out more about the Art Dealer Show at artdealer.show. You can also find us at all the big social media spots under the handle of, guess you guessed it, Art Dealer Show.